Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you again to the book of 1 Corinthians. Whether you have an app on your device or a printed copy, as I highly encourage you to bring with you to church on Sundays, I want you to find 1 Corinthians, but not the chapter you're expecting. If you're following in this sermon series that I've been preaching for the last year and a half through this book, you'll know that we just completed chapter 13, a tremendous chapter on love. But we're going to skip chapter 14. Now, not forever. I can't wait to walk you through chapter 14 and what it has to teach us. But I couldn't miss the opportunity to ask you to go to chapter 15 with me for just the next few weeks because this is the time when our hearts are on the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is one of the most powerful, beautiful, and thorough treatments of the importance of the resurrection to your daily walk with Christ. I want to say that again. The resurrection is important to your daily walk with Christ. I realize that when we say the resurrection, we immediately and rightly think about what took place three days after the death of Jesus. It is that glorious Sunday morning that we will gather next Lord's Day to commemorate. Now, we recognize that dates and times are not nearly as important as the church gathered together in unity in the Spirit under the banner of the Word of God and the faith that is delivered to us through the apostles celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, many of you know that Easter services for years have been begun with that statement, He has risen And then the congregation returns, he has risen indeed. It is the resurrection of Jesus that validates everything he said. The risk, however, is to leave it as only an historical event about our faith and to not see that how you live tomorrow, how you handle Tuesday, how you navigate Wednesday, how you mess around with Thursday, how you enjoy Good Friday, how you make decisions about Saturday, and so on and so forth, have everything to do with your view, understanding, and experience of the resurrection of Jesus. In chapter 15, Paul enters into the last thorough discussion of the book. We've dealt with all kinds of issues that were dividing the Corinthian church. Think about them. We've talked about spiritual gifts. We've talked about spiritual arrogance. We've talked about the abuse of the Lord's Supper. We've talked about the allowance and toleration of sexual sin in the church. We've talked about a low view of the cross and a high view of self. From chapter 1 all the way up to today, there have been a number of issues that the Corinthian believers were getting wrong, and Paul wanted them to get it right. And it's by no coincidence that he begins the book with a celebration of the foolishness of the cross and he ends the book with a celebration of the need of the resurrection. Here's the problem. The problem is what had invaded the Corinthian church. In the Greco-Roman world, there weren't many atheists. 
In fact, almost everyone believed not only in life after death, but they believed that life after death could be experienced by any person. Here was the problem. In the ancient world, the flesh, the body, was seen as the source of all our problems. And the spirit and the soul needed to be liberated from the presence of the flesh. Now, you can see how Christians can relate to this because we talk about sins of the flesh. We talk about the desires of our body, whether they be pride or anger or frustration or lust. And we know, according to the teachings of the Scripture, that one day our flesh will be delivered from the power and the presence of sin. But in the ancient world, they thought, if I die and my spirit ascends to wherever they thought it ascended to, the last thing I ever want is for my spirit to live in a fleshly body again. Here's the problem with that in Christianity. That's exactly what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches not only the full bodily resurrection of Jesus, but it teaches that because of the resurrection of Jesus, which was real, full, and bodily, all believers will one day experience not only the passing of their souls from this world to the next, but the reunification of their soul, their spirit, with their literal physical body, the body your mama gave you, the body you were given on this earth, except that body while it will be fully in the flesh with bones and tissue and muscles just like Adam and Eve, it will be fully out from under the curse of sin. It will never know sickness. It will never know age. It will never know uh, the lust of the flesh. Now, the Corinthian believers apparently had said, eh, we believe Jesus resurrected, but we don't know if our bodies will be resurrected. That's a major problem. In fact, so major that Paul coins a term in chapter 15. We'll be in it for the next few weeks. He says, if, if you trust a Christ that died and rose again, and yet you don't believe he can raise you again, you have believed in vain. Now, there are three definitions for the word vain in the English language. One is to have or showing an undue excessive pride in one's appearance, vanity fair, for example. To live in vain, to be vain. There was even a song years ago, vain. That's about as close as I can get to it, right? <laughs> but there are also two other definitions of vain. I put them on the screen for you. Marked by futility or ineffectualness, meaning unsuccessful or useless. For, for example, uh, people tried in vain to save the Titanic from sinking. M many people feel like now, based on current understanding, that some of the efforts we were mandated to take during COVID were really efforts that were in vain. They were useless. They were ineffective. We all know that term. In fact, the third definition sort of fleshes out the second one, having no real value. Now, here's the scary thing. Paul says, there's a way to be around Christians. There's a way to be around Christianity. There's a way to profess Christ as your Savior and to do it 
in vain. If you have your copy of God's Word open, let me show you what I mean in chapter 15. Look at the end of verse 2. It's one of the most startling phrases in the New Testament. Chapter 15, verse 2. Unless you believed in vain. Look, Look at verse 10. He coins it again. But by God's grace, or by grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Again, if you're looking at your copy of God's Word, scroll down to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Now go all the way to the end of the chapter. Look what he says in verse 58. Chapter 15, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's really no other title for this sermon series than simply that, not in vain. That we would have a faith that's not useless, that's not ineffective, that's not empty. We know there are many people in and around Christian circles who gut Easter of its meaning. There are some around this time of year who will point to Easter as a spiritual new beginning for you or for your loved ones, no matter what you believe. There's a website about spirituality and health, and one author named Julie Peters said this, regardless of what traditions you follow, the spiritual meaning of Easter is a new light after sacrifice or tribulation. We might not be quite through the suffering yet, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Let me give you a Greek word for that, hogwash. Last year, Senator Raphael Warnock got in trouble for a tweet that he tweeted, a very liberal theologian in his own right. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus, the senior pastor of New Ebenezer Baptist Church account said. Whether you are a Christian or not, through commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. It's heresy. It's heresy. That's not true. That's not the teachings of Scripture. And so when we begin to navigate this world filled with all these different views of Easter, it is not for us to leave our church houses angry at lost people for thinking lostly. It is for us to leave affirmed in the truth of the gospel. And I think it's very interesting that one of the enemy's attack on Corinth was to cause people to take the worldview of their day and to apply it to their Christianity. And I, friend, want you to know that's exactly the greatest threat to Christianity today. That we look around at all the different ways people are attempting to interpret life and we attempt to elevate those views above the Word of God. This is why God has given us a Word. He is well aware that cultures change, that generations change, that worldviews change, that thinking change. He knows that the human mind left without tie to the Word of God will be open to all kinds of rational and irrational excuses around the reality that we are broken sinners in need of a Savior, but praise His holy name, we got one. 
And when we celebrate the resurrection, it's important for us to understand that the resurrection should impact the way we live our lives today. Not just how we dress next week. Not just what service we choose to attend or what beliefs we choose to say that we affirm. If the power of the resurrection is not seen in our worldview, then we've missed it and we are at risk of doing exactly what Paul says, of believing in vain. Having a faith, but a useless one. Having a confession, but an empty one. And as a preacher of the gospel, I would say this is one of the greatest fears I have, that people would hear the gospel preached, would ascend to some form of affirmation and belief, but never truly be saved because they hold back from the Lord areas of their life that they won't repent from, they won't turn from, they won't trust him in, and yet they are around the gospel enough to grow comfortable with the language so that they will quickly tell you They have a relationship with the Lord, but there's no fruit. These are the people Jesus refers to when he says, And on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you. One of my prayers over this week has been, as we open up chapter 15, is that people in this church who need to be saved would be saved. And that all of us who have a relationship with the Lord would drive deeper Grounding ourselves to make sure that our faith and our walk is not in vain. So if you'll allow me this morning, I just want to walk through the first few verses. And I'd like to tell you how not to believe in vain. Look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. I don't want anybody in this room or anyone watching on your home device to believe in vain. How can you be sure that you're not believing in vain? Let me offer three requirements. Number one, know how to believe. You need to know how to trust in Christ. It's interesting to me that Paul really subtly offers somewhat of not an affirmation, but a reprimand. 
Look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. You ever had anybody say, let me remind you what I already told you. Have you ever gotten something wrong and said, hey, you didn't tell me. And a few minutes later, they send you a screenshot of the text where they told you. (laughs) Well, I didn't see the text. I changed phones. No, you didn't. You didn't change phones. I had email issues. This is sort of like the new alarm clock. If you ever notice, that's the only thing in our house. My alarm didn't go off. No, it didn't. It went off. Either it went off and you didn't hear it or you didn't set it. It just doesn't fail that much. Paul is saying, I need to remind you what I already preached to you. Why? Look down at verse 12. I read it a few moments ago. I'll read it again. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you, he's not talking about lost Corinthians, he's talking about people who've identified with the church. Some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. So they would absolutely say Christ resurrected, but then they would not apply that to our lives. There is a term some of you have heard you may not understand. It's okay if you don't understand the term. That's part of my job is to explain those words to you. It's called eschatology. It's the study of end times. What will happen in the end of history. How this whole thing will end. When you think about eschatology, two books that come to mind. The Old Testament book that speaks a lot about the end times is the book of Daniel where he prophesies and some of his prophecies we understand to be speaking of the second coming and after that. And then primarily, of course, the final book in your Bible, which is one revelation. It's not revelations plural. There's no S on it. Revelation because it is the revelation of the returning Lord Jesus. And it is a series of visions that the apostle John is given, caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day and gives to us. Now, granted, the the language is tremendously figurative and metaphoric, and you can just tell by reading Revelation that John is grasping for words to describe what he's seeing. However, there is specificity in what we know to be true. There are people who love the Lord Jesus who debate over some of the finer details of the end times. Will the Lord rapture the church before the tribulation? Will he rapture the church during the tribulation? Will the church go through the tribulation? These are debates that church people who love the Lord have, and I have friends that land in all those places, and I'm glad to correct any of them. But the, the reality is, While there is some parts of what will take place that we don't know for sure, most of it's crystal clear. And one of the crystal clear teachings is the resurrection of the dead. That when Christ comes and prepares to judge the world, all, not the saved, all will be resurrected. Saved and lost. And upon their resurrection, they will stand before the Lord. And all covered by the blood of Christ will be welcomed into his presence of eternal grace, love, peace, harmony in a new heaven and a new earth. I don't know how that works. I don't know if there'll be a holy escalator where we go back and forth. But there's a new heaven and a new earth. And those who reject Christ will be consigned to the wrath of God for their sins that Christ died for, yet was not applied to them because they did not receive him. And they, along with Satan and every demon under his control, will be cast into 
hell. This is what the Bible teaches. This is why we preach salvation. This is why we share the gospel. This matters. Heaven is real. Hell is real. The grace of God in heaven gives glory to him forever. The wrath of God in hell gives glory to him and ever. In heaven, the grace of God is shown. In hell, the justice of God is shown. And so, God will have his say, and we will experience that in a bodily resurrection. So to deny a bodily resurrection is to really deny the faith of Christianity, which is why Paul starts by saying, let me explain how you heard the gospel. Look at verse 1 again. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now, notice the if. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. If you're ever sitting with someone and you have the opportunity to share the gospel, many of you will share it with your children, your grandchildren, nieces and nephews. There's absolutely nothing wrong with telling someone that if they ask Christ to save them, he will. But there's everything wrong with reducing the presentation of the gospel to just a pithy prayer. I was in the low country a few weeks ago and there's a group of people, I don't know who, I didn't look it up, but apparently they, they believe that the way people are saved is to simply read on a billboard, ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, or they'll put the prayer, the sinner's prayer, on the billboard in first person, Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Those aren't bad words. That's not a bad thing for people to read. The problem is the presentation of the gospel without the full explanation of what that means. This does not mean someone has to be a genius or a scholar to be saved. It does mean that someone has to fully understand what's taking place. Jesus never encouraged flippant or haphazard spiritual decision. In fact, he would say things like, count the cost. He would would say things that would cause people to be startled by the seriousness of the commitment he's asking. If you just look at verses 1 and 2, if you want to mark this in your Bible, this is a great way to show someone how to truly believe. If we were to put them in list form, it would be something like this, right out of the text. You must hear the gospel. People can't look up at the sun and the moon and the stars and be saved. Romans 1 teaches us, that the revelation of God in creation is enough to leave mankind without excuse. No one gets to stand before God and say, you did not reveal yourself to me. Creation alone cries to the glory of God. However, the Bible teaches that that general revelation of God While it may be enough to condemn you, it's not enough to save you. You need what theologians would call special revelation. You need to know who Christ is. Remember that famous passage in Romans that we use on Mission Sunday? How will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will someone preach unless someone goes? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news of the King. So you you must hear the gospel. You have to explain the gospel. Then you must receive it. That's by faith. You say, I've not only heard it, but I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he's fully man and fully God, and that he came and he lived and he died and he rose again. The very basics are important. Christians, listen to me. Don't get past preaching that gospel to yourself. You you need to be mindful of that gospel often. 
But then upon salvation, you stand in it. The text literally says, which you stand in. That's that right standing. So I stand redeemed. I was condemned, but I stand redeemed. I don't hope I'm redeemed. I'm not hedging my bets. I stand in the full redemption of God. This would be called justification, that Christ's substitutionary death for me paid for my sins. And then Paul says, he says in the passage, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which, notice the English, you are being saved. Now, which is it, Pastor? Are you saved once or are you being saved daily? Well, you know me well enough to know how I answer that. Yes. Yes. We believe that upon salvation, your fate is sealed. You are a child of God. But the evidence to the validity of that one-time experience is seen in the ongoing work of God in your life to transform you to be more like his son. This is called sanctification. Don't let the big word scare you. It comes from the the root word sanctify. Sanctify is in that same family as to be holy. Not holy like living in a with a group of people uh, in a monastery separated from the world, holy like I'm set apart to serve the Lord. I'm loyal to no other God but the one true God. He owns me. I belong to him. He is the master. I am the servant. This is how Paul loved to describe himself, a servant of Christ. And so you experience the daily working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then Paul says, if you hold fast. Now, this is very important, very important. Paul is not teaching, nor does the New Testament teach, that my effort to hold to Christ is what saves me. That would be works-based salvation. That There is no reason that any of us make heaven other than the work of Christ. We did not do it. He did it. We don't earn our salvation We receive it by believing. But cheap believism has created a generation of people who identify as Christians, yet their faith is empty, or should I say in vain, because they're not fully trusting in Him for salvation. And the evidence of someone who fully trusts is that they hold fast to that profession their entire life. Does it mean we don't deal with seasons of doubt? Does it mean we don't deal with seasons of worry and anxiety? It doesn't mean that there aren't times in our life where we have a crisis of faith. But the evidence of having truly been saved is that the ongoing work of salvation creates a life that holds to Christ alone. Famously, the last Words of Charles Spurgeon, the greatest English-speaking preacher of all times, where Jesus died for me. On his deathbed, that's what he held on to. So I would just say in the room this morning, and for those of you watching online, does this describe your salvation? I'm not in any way suggesting that you haven't had seasons of wavering or struggle or sin. 
even doubt. But I'm saying if you look at the body of work of your life from the moment you profess Christ, some of you as a nine-year-old little girl, others of you it may have been last week, but from the moment you professed Christ, have you been able to say, yes, I heard it, I received it, I stand in it, I've experienced the work of God in my life, convicted me of my sin, challenging me, growing me, affirming me, loving me, and I'm holding fast to it today. There is no other hope I have. Unlike the earlier person I quoted, I will not save myself. And Easter is not about new life and Easter bunnies and plastic eggs, although I really love the Reese Cup eggs. I really, really do. Easter's not about that. Easter's about the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees my future resurrection. That's how you believe. But then Paul would say, you need to know what to believe. Man, this is so good. Watch this in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here comes the gospel. If you've ever wanted to share the gospel with anyone, take them to 1 Corinthians 15. For what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared, and then the list of the appearance. Four parts to the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Now, notice how Paul says, according to the Scriptures. We could go a lot of places, but how could we not go to Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Jesus? This is what the prophet prophesied. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus died in our place. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. To deny The death of Jesus for our sins is to chip away at the holiness of God. It is to also call him a liar, for he said that's what he came to do. So Jesus died. Now, there's always some who would argue, did he really die? And if he did die, how can we prove it? If you hear that someone died, first thing you do is call your mama. Did so-and-so pass away? Because mamas know. They just know it. They'll call you. Hey, you remember such and such? No. Don't you remember them? Well, they died. Well, good gracious, Mom, I didn't even remember them. But so, so there's this point in your life, I don't know when it is, where you read the obituaries often. I think sometimes you get to a point where you're like, I just want to make sure my name's not in there, that, that I'm here. But there is a surefire way to confirm whether or not a person died, if you bury them. If the body's missing, there's always doubt. I grew up in the great state of Alabama. In South Alabama, Elvis is seen monthly. (laughs) I listened to an interview once of one of his backup singers, and they said, I saw Elvis' body. I went to the funeral. I was at the funeral home. I viewed the body. Elvis is dead. Why? Because there's a body. We had a funeral. Jesus died. Died a literal death. The Son of God breathed no more. He died. This is important because without a death for sin, there is no payment for sin. 
In the Old Testament, not a single lamb walked off the altar. Their throats were slit. Their blood was shed. They died. Jesus died. And then the Scriptures says, God raised him from the dead. This is very important. Jesus did not raise himself. The Father raised him from the dead because a dead man can do nothing for himself. This is important because of what we teach of salvation. Salvation is not self-improvement. It's not going to church more and reading about Jesus and trying to say less cuss words when you stump your toe. That's not salvation. Those can be evidences of salvation, but salvation is when Christ takes a dead woman in her sin and makes her a new creation. Salvation is not buffing off the rough edges or self-help. Salvation is when we are a corpse in our sin, dead to Christ, dead to his will, dead to his word, and Christ makes us alive just as the Father raised him from the dead. Now, the powerful thing is, is that this resurrection could be written about, but how can it be confirmed? Well, we know, Paul says, he then appeared. People didn't hear rumors of Jesus raised, being raised from the dead. He appeared. And then Paul gives us the most detailed list of all the people he appeared to. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse nine, verse 6. Then he appeared to, or excuse me, verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles. So, so this is the order in which he appeared to the apostles and the leaders around him. And Paul doesn't even attempt to include everybody. We know that one of the first appearances was by the women who went to the tomb to find him. But he begins the list with Cephas, Peter, and ends the list with James to show that apostolic parentheses around the mission of God. And interestingly, that's probably when James got saved. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that the home had a broken marriage. Jesus didn't have an earthly father. So when Joseph knew Mary in their marriage sexually and she conceived and had other children, they're called the half-brother of James. Because our friends in the Catholic Church deny uh, that, G that Mary ever lost her virginity, that's why she's called the virgin mother, they changed the translation to say cousins. But the Bible bears out witness that while Mary was an extraordinary woman that we ought to be thankful for, she's not to be prayed to or venerated. She was a woman like every woman in this room and like every woman in this room who marries and mothers children. She was a woman who did not remain a virgin. And so she had James and others, and they did not believe in Jesus' ministry early on. The book of John tells us this in John chapter 7. For not even his brothers believed in him. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, look what's happening. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. How did James go from being a skeptical, skept, being skeptical to being an apostle? He was a skeptic first, then he became an apostle. I'll tell you how. He saw a dead man alive. The resurrected Lord appeared to him, and he knew his brother. You got some third cousins you might not recognize anymore. 
They put on a little weight. They don't look very good. But you know your brother. He saw his brother. And so this appearance happened. And by the way, that's the gospel from start to finish. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. And Jesus resurrected. If I could not believe those things, my friends, we are wasting our time, which leads, of course, to the final requirement. Know how to believe. Know what to believe. Know why to believe. Paul turns to a tender, personal moment of profession. I'll close where he closes. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. This word untimely born, I always understood it to mean Paul was saying, I was born later than those, and so I didn't meet Jesus until he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. And that is a viable option. But when you dig a little deeper, something powerful comes out. The phrase, which appears here, it appears elsewhere in ancient literature like the Septuagint, is actually the phrase used for a stillborn baby or a miscarried baby. Paul is saying, I wasn't there when Christ resurrected. And when Christ found me, I was malformed and dead in my sin. As a miscarried baby breaks the heart of its family, as a stillborn son or daughter causes us grief and mourning because what should have been a small vessel of life is lifeless in our arms, Paul says, that's what I was spiritually. And then Christ appeared to me. And if you remember when he appeared to Paul, Paul was on his way to persecute the church. In fact, that's what Jesus said. Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, Lord, who are you? And Jesus reveals himself. Paul's life is forever changed. In a sense, Paul's story is all of our story. From being unsaved and unworthy to being unashamed and unwavering. Listen to the pride Paul has, not in himself, but in the amazing grace of God in his life. For I, verse 9, and the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You want to pick out something to put on your tombstone? Put that on your tombstone. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is not in vain. It wasn't empty. It wasn't useless. It wasn't meaningless. It was rich and deep and life-changing. And then he says these words, on the contrary, I worked harder. And it sounds a little prideful, but when we understand it in this context, Paul was saying, I shouldn't have even been included in the group, but by God's grace, he gave me a measure of faithfulness to work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And just so we know, he's not worried about who gets the credit. He says, whether then it was I or they, whether it was me or some other apostle. So we preach... That's why you believed. You want to know why you need to live the resurrection every day? Because it is that power that takes you from being unworthy and unsaved 
to being unashamed and unwavering. It's all we got when our dreams are shattered. A deranged woman entered a school in Nashville Monday, took the life of four people. I will not live, operate, or speak in our current illusion as a nation. This was a woman. And this woman, I believe, definitely, under demonic influence, took the lives of four people. If you don't see the demonic power in all these lies that are being circulated, you're not reading your Bible. Does it mean that every person confused about their life or confused about their identity is someone who would hurt another person? Absolutely not. But as we see these patterns of terrible wickedness emerge, we see little lives like Hallie snuffed out. Hallie Scrubs was nine years old. She's the daughter of the pastor of the church. She was shot and killed in that school. This is her years before with her father. I couldn't help but see myself in that picture holding one of my little ones who are not so little anymore. Do you know what her pastor father said? This is what he said. He released one statement. Through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. Don't you tell me the resurrection's not important. What a bullet from a deranged gunman took, my Savior will restore one day. And every time we come to celebrate that, whether it be at baptism or at the Lord's Supper, we declare that we believe death in Christ leads to life in Christ. So this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I want you to prepare your heart through the words of a song. I don't want you to stand. I don't even want you to sing. Prayerfully, I want you to reflect on everything I've said. And in a moment after the song, we're going to conclude with the Lord's Supper. If you're a guest of ours, our table is open to any Christ follower. If you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not broken in your fellowship with Him, you're welcome to enjoy that with us. If you don't know where you stand with the Lord, mom and dad, if you have a child with you that's not yet made that decision, it's perfectly fine for them to participate through watching the believers around them. Some of my children will do that in the later service. But for those of you who are in Christ, the Scripture says that you ought to examine your heart before you take the Lord's Supper. Often I walk you through that in sermon, but today we're going to do it in song. I want you to focus on this cross, who it represents, as you hear these words. Let's pray together. Father, as we prepare to come to your table, first through song and then through the taking of the elements, Help us to be overwhelmed and never forget your kindness in the cross. On the evening the Lord was arrested, a Passover table was set like this one. 
He told the disciples that he had longed to enjoy this with them. After dinner, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. As often as you eat, do so in remembrance of me. The Bible says in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them to drink. And he said, as often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of my blood. There's a lot of things in life worth cherishing. We've been reminded of that this week. Next week, our hearts will be on an empty tomb. That's where they should be. But this morning, leave here under the shadow of a cross. Appreciate it. Trust the work of Christ. Don't believe in vain. And cherish it.